Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Imagination is, you know, the, the, the match which lights the grenade that has been created by hope. The tightrope of acceptability that girls in their teen years are expected to walk is a centimetre wide. And that is such rubbish. But what you can do is you can look at it and shake hands with it and you can say, I'm afraid. I'm not ashamed of being afraid. Fear is something that shapes every human, but I'm not going to let the fear be the thing that dictates my life. I'm so excited to introduce one of the most inventive, original authors of children's fiction writing today. UK's most successful and highly acclaimed best-selling author of several children's books and the recipient of many accolades, including the Costa Children's Book Award, the Blue Peter Book Award and the Waterstones Children's Book Prize, among many others. Her first novel debuted when she was only 21 years old and she has been writing for 10 years since, producing some of the most unique and captivating storylines. Her characters are often found taming wolves, discovering lost cities deep in the jungle, building rafts or climbing rooftops. You've probably already worked out who I'm referring to. Fittingly then, some of her works include The Rooftoppers, Cartwheeling in Thunderstorms, The Wolf Wilder, The Explorer and The Good Thieves. She grew up in Zimbabwe and Brussels. Currently she's in London and a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. A huge fan of our favourite mischievous furry friend, Paddington the Bear, and the boy wonder wizard, Harry Potter. Her writing embraces the mystical, whilst also addressing some of the most crucial themes for young folks to understand. She deliberately acknowledges exploratory themes that she is keen for both children to know and adults to remember. Those being fear, love, and failure. While many of us might struggle to muster energy to get out of bed each morning, my guest chooses to begin each day impressively with a cartwheel, a wonderful metaphor for how she views the power of reading, turning the world upside down while leaving you breathless. This speaks volumes to her perceptiveness and offers an inkling to her flair and magnetic energy, which is captivated in each of her books. She wrote her first novel, The Girl Savage, as she began the seven-year prize fellowship at Oxford's All Souls College. A true testament to her dedication and artistry to her passion, diligently working to combine her love for fiction and academia meant that she would often wake at dawn, fluctuate between working on her novel and her academic work, impressively until midnight. Sacrificing sleep, and most probably everything else socially also, her discipline is nothing short of commendable. Perhaps more admirable than even her dedication to fiction writing and remarkable aptitude for academia is her courageous love for adventure. She seems to seek out the most outrageously exhilarating of hobbies, embraces life with a sense of adventure and joy, with tenacity, and exudes an aura of infectious liberation. If you need to understand what I mean by this, then let me share that in her spare time, however sparingly that may be, you may well find my guest enjoying her walks on none other than tight ropes. Yes, you heard me correctly. I said tight ropes. And more daringly than that, trespassing on the rooftops of Oxford colleges. See what I mean? 
Full of philosophical muse, creating stories in equal measure of chaos and discovery, she is as remarkable in person as she comes across in her award-winning books. She explains very profoundly that the rise of children's books say, the world is huge. They say, hope counts for something. Bravery will matter. Wit, empathy, love will matter. These things may or may not be true, I hope that they are. She is, of course, the most talented and gorgeous soul inside and out, Catherine Rundell. A hugely warm welcome to you, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I'm actually having a major fangirl moment myself, um, feeling extremely excited and so honoured to have someone I admire so much with me. It means a lot. Um, I find it everything you say and everything you write full of so much wisdom. The messaging around learning and growing through books and stories is extremely insightful. I'm fascinated by your background and upbringing. I wondered if that would be the right place for us to start talking about your formative years. As a child, we're in Zimbabwe, where your father served as a diplomat. Will you talk us through that a little bit and what it was like for you? I imagine it allowed you to have levels of freedom that most kids would not have ever experienced. I think I was so lucky when I was young in being able to live in a country from which my mother comes. My mother is a first-generation Zimbabwean. Um, and so when we went there, it was a little bit for her, like coming home. And Zimbabwe is a place of many different extremes. It's currently a place that has been suffering from its dictatorship for a while. It's also a place that suffers from the aftermath of colonial rule. But the thing that it has is extraordinary beauty and a population of people known throughout the whole of sub-Saharan Africa for having a spectacular, very deadpan, very dry sense of humour. Mm. And for its sense of freedom that it can give children, because we were able to play outside without parental supervision for hours and hours. We would just leave in the morning and come back in the evening. And I think there is something really remarkable about the hours that you spend without an adult nearby, particularly from the ages of about nine till about 13, where those memories for me just shine because you have no sense that anybody else is about to interrupt or coordinate your play or impose the rules of authority on what you're doing. And so we just felt constantly a little bit anarchic and a little bit chaotic. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time during the holidays. We would go to a beautiful place called Nyanga in the east of the country, um, which is a sort of wet uh, forested area and we would do things that were I now know looking back at them profoundly stupid <laughs> like uh, running away from cows down a hill and jumping into a lake or building rafts and trying to pole our way down rivers having no idea what might be in those rivers but it was just this kind of rich rich delight mm. and it it's something that I wish we were able to create for more children and something which I hope as time goes on, we'll realise more and more, especially for urban kids, is so important to try to get them something like that, mm -hmm. something that shines in the same way. Even if we can't get everyone to Zimbabwe, to give them some time outside of adult supervision is such a gleeful thing. 
it's so it sounds idyllic it really does and I feel maybe this sort of leads me into my next question that possibly the way you're giving that to children is through your writing style do you feel your childhood shaped the way you write because some of the same adventures that you just described I, I feel were sort of mentioned in some of the stories I think so many of my books are an attempt to capture and pin down that kind of feeling of the potential for adventure in daily life. Mm -hmm. And of course, my books are wild, unlikely adventures. They're about children living on the rooftops of Paris and riding through the Russian snow and performing heists in New York City. But at the heart of them, there is this sense that you are wilder and braver than you know. Mm. And that the way to undig that within yourself is to go on whatever adventure you can, whether that's storming a castle or whether more realistically in one's own life, it's going out with friends and playing and pretending. Yeah. I think pretending is such an important thing that people forget its value. Pretending and play build children into resilient adults. There's this fantastically interesting um, experiment that was done on rats, where some of the rats were allowed to uh, play when they were young, and some of them were not. And the ones who were allowed to play were playing with uh, the adults who were raising them and also with each other. And then they introduced into the cages a piece of fur impregnated with the smell of a cat. And the rats who had been allowed to play all ran away and hid, as did the rats who hadn't been allowed to play. But the rats who were allowed to play came out again to explore and to see what was going on within a few hours. And the rats who hadn't stayed put for days. And so there's this difference, there's this this rich difference. And of course, we're not rats. And, you know, those experiments can only take us so far. But... When you let children play, what you're letting them do is discover within themselves rich hordes that they didn't know they had. What a really great reminder about the importance of pretend and imaginative play. It's so undervalued, in my opinion, and not given enough importance these days. So that story was really great to share. So then you, so we carry on from that point. You then move back to Europe as a teen. You arrive in Brussels aged 14, is that correct? A major transition for you, especially as a teen girl, having to learn how to navigate new cultural nuances and ways of doing things. Um, I imagine teenage life must have been very interesting, to say the least. Can you share your experiences from this and particularly in the way that you still carry these messages from what you learned in that time within your writing? Yeah, so it was just so different. Um, There is just a chasm between Zimbabwe and Belgium. Both are magnificent countries in their way, although my loyalty lies with Zimbabwe. But I think the thing that I learned that has now been etched deep into my blood is that there is not one right way of doing things because the ways of behaving in Zim that seemed exactly the way one should be in Brussels seemed exactly the way one shouldn't be. And I think the only thing you can do is decide what is right for you. Rebecca Solnit, who is such a brilliant writer, she always says, there are infinite numbers of beauties and infinite good ways to lead a life. There's not just one good way. And I think often the internet and social media would suggest your face should look one very specific way and your body should look one even more specific way. And the tightrope of acceptability that girls in their teen years are expected to walk is 
a centimeter wide. And that is such rubbish. Mm. The thing that I learned was that your tightrope of acceptability changes from country to country, which means that there cannot be one. Mm. There is no one way. There are infinite ways to live well. And what you must do is hunt inside yourself to find your version. Wow, you have just left me with goosebumps with your conviction and explanation of those incredibly moving points. And I love the fact that you use tightrope um, because that will lead me on to, <laughs> to my next question, which is a bit more curios- curiosity about your university days at which you, and I've mentioned this in my introduction already, but you developed a hobby uh, to to learn how to walk on tightrope, but also you then learned at university to climb rooftops. I'm so enamored and also curious about how this came about. So the rooftoping comes from a long history of climbing the buildings of Oxbridge Colleges, the Night Climbers of Cambridge, uh, which is a brilliant book by a man called Whipplesnaith, um, was this group of young men who were also quite serious mountaineers. So, you know, they had all the ropes and all the outfits and they would go climbing up all the old 15th and 16th century colleges. They'd climb up the cathedrals, they'd climb up the spires, they'd use the, um, the, the sort of griffins on the edges of the buildings and the gargoyles as footholds. And I read about this and I thought this sounded so exciting. So I started doing something similar in Oxford. Um, But also I have always loved climbing. My dad first took me to a climbing wall when I was about six, I think. And I've always loved scrambling up rocks and climbing trees. And so um, when I first got my fellowship at All Souls College in Oxford, I was told that there was a trap door above the lavatory, above the library. And if you pushed up in it, you would come up into a little sort of tower with steps, um, with rungs riven into the brickwork. And then you could climb up that and you would come out onto the rooftop. And so it was one night that I was up on the rooftop of All Souls College at about two o'clock in the morning, because obviously something to mention to any young women listening, it is completely illegal. And so we were up there, me and a friend. I always climb with a climbing partner in case something goes wrong. And um, we were running around the, the rooftop of uh, All Souls and we came across this empty glass bottle of beer. And we were trying to work out why there would be an empty glass bottle of beer on the rooftop because it kind of blown up there. Mm-hmm. And of course, it turned out very boringly that someone had left it there on a packed lunch when they had come up to fetch the roof tiles years before. But that became my book, Rooftoppers, which is about children who live on the rooftops of Paris. It started with that, what if? What if it actually were true that someone was living on the rooftop of all sorts? What would that look like? And what if, in fact, there were whole gangs of children on the rooftops? So my my climbing has always just been a part of my childhood and a thing that I love. I love to be up high. I love to be able to see the world because I was quite a shy child and the idea of being able to see the world, but it can't see you seemed to be a great joy. But also, you never know where your ideas will come from. Sometimes you go on little escapades and a book might flourish out of them. That's so inspiring. Did you have particularly favourite authors or books that you were drawn to as a youngster? Uh, so many. Um I was very lucky to have had access to a library in Zimbabwe called the Mount Pleasant Library. I had quite a lot of very old fashioned books and I just read my way through the entire children's section, which wasn't that big. It was just one quite small room. And um, and I read this wonderful writer, who very few people read now, called Diana Wynne-Jones. 
She's famous primarily for Howl's Moving Castle, which was a very brilliant Studio Ghibli animated movie. Mm. But she is, if you ask any writer who writes for the sort of age range that I write, so many of them will mention her. She's a sort of writer's writer because she is so funny and so sarcastic and so ironical and so so able to summon up an entire world in the first chapter. And so if anyone is looking for a book, Charmed Life by Diana Wynne-Jones is an amazing place to start. Oh, what a wonderful recommendation. Even listening to you speak, you're so profoundly articulate and you're incredibly astute in the subtle yet extremely meaningful ways you communicate. And even the dangers and adventures that your characters face, much like the one you mentioned that you went through yourself, it just speak. So it, it, the excitement levels are so wonderful. Have you always wanted to write for children? Were, were the authors and the books that you read as a youngster what inspired you to want to create stories of the same type? I don't think that I would have said I always wanted to write for children. I always wanted to write. And when the time came for me to start, I was 21. And I think the books at that point that I loved most were by and large children's books. I had fallen in love with Shakespeare and with uh, George Eliot and with Jane Austen and Nabokov and all of those people. But the ones, the books that had made the mark on my skin that sort of burrowed deep into my heart were all children's books. And so I thought I would like to try to recreate for children that sense of finding a book which makes the entire world look different to you or a book which just comforts you and gives you a sense of your own capacity and your own potential or just a book that makes you laugh. There were so many books that as a child would just transform the day on which I read them. And I thought that I would love to try to do that because when you're in the ages that I'm writing for, sort of eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, those are the ages at which you are becoming who you're going to be. Yeah. And the idea of writing for those people is such a privilege and such a pressure because you really don't want to get it wrong. And it's so wonderful to have your role modeling and your messaging in, in the works that you do. I mean, one of the things that I think I read, I'm going to quote you on this, is that you said, we have yet to imagine children's interior lives as being as interesting and as valuable as those of adults. But they are. They are as rich and strange as adults. I was so moved by this quote. And I sort of wonder if you just, you talked about being a writing for kids in their formative years and how this might then carry on informing who they are, even if we sort of forget how rich children's interiors are. I think that is something that I feel very passionate about. Children are infinite. Children have the capacity to live huge lives. Children's emotional depth is as deep as an adult's. They have less understanding of the context of the world through which they move because they haven't learned it yet. But their reactions to things are fully as true and urgent as an adult's. And when I think of myself as a kid, I'm the same. The joy is the same and the desires are the same. I just now happen to be taller and no more and I'm allowed to drink wine, which is marvellous. But, <laughs> but I do think that we underestimate children consistently, especially in England. I think America also falls into the same trap. And often we expect them to be a sort of a sort of thin and pliable and slightly tawdry version of humanity. I think often 
we have produced such bad TV for them for so long and such bad movies and such bad toys, mm-hmm. toys that break so easily that we sort of think that the children must match the movies, but that's not it. Adults made those movies. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if children got what they deserve in terms of film and in terms of books, we would have some really spectacular art if people understood just how urgent their needs are and how formidable it would be to meet them. And of course there are, there are brilliant books out there which have done that, but I'm not sure we're there yet with the movies. I think we need to work harder on that one. I can't agree with you more though, honestly. I think that's what's driven me back into education over and over again. I've the, the learning that I rediscover and the things I find enlightening from children and the, and the messaging that I get reminded of from their hearts and from their innocence is, is it's just so real. It's so authentic and it's so rich it's, as you say, it really is. I, I think the other sort of bit I was intrigued by when I was reading about your writing was the fact that you, you say that you write for two people, you write for yourself at age 12 and then you write for yourself now as an adult and the book that you are working on has to satisfy both of these appetites, which are, or connect with both appetites, which I found so wonderful. Because I wonder if that's is that the recipe to your success? Do you think is there you're so relatable and you're always able to connect with your inner child? <laughs> that's very kind of you. I think I think it is that if I write a book that I wouldn't want to read now, I would think that a failure because. I think every child deserves a book which has the sort of richness that I would demand as an adult. And I think the ideal book is the book which they can read to themselves, which they can read again when they're 30 or 40, which an adult can read to them who might be any age. Books are often group activities. They are often, um, you know, at the heart of multiple relationships. And I want to be able to give something to every reader, both the 10 year old and also the 40 year old reading to the 10 year old and also the 10 year old when they're 60. You want them to always find new discoveries in your work. And that does mean trying to work out various levels that there are enough jokes that make sense to a 10-year-old and also which makes sense as a 30-year-old. So it it does mean that um, I rewrite my books. I'm quite a slow writer. Many of my friends are much, much quicker and able to sort of um, concentrate their efforts. But I take about two years. Wow. So and I rewrite about 17 drafts usually. I go through a lot of different versions. Wow. And that sort of speaks to all the layers that you're adding in there because you're writing to an audience of of so many different ages. Yeah. Of multiple people. That takes a lot of talent and a lot of patience, I would imagine. You spoke a little bit earlier when you were describing your childhood about resilience. Resilience and instilling this value, allowing children not to fear failure, is something I'm desperately trying to work hard at with Elevate. I love what you say about fear, which I will share now. You say, I used to be fearless. I'm not fearless anymore. Fear is a fact. But in things, it's not useful information. It's just our human animal reaction. But you can say, good, you're afraid. That makes sense. Do it anyway. Do it scared. This message is just so powerful for me. I wonder if you could share some of the steps you might take with my listeners or with parents of young children who would like to learn how to combat that fear that 
I mentioned and you mentioned earlier. And how, if you have any tips on any ways that you came to the realization that being scared is actually what might make the journey worth it. Yeah, I think exactly that. So I would say if you're not afraid sometimes of the things that you're doing, whether it's uh, physical feats, whether you're about to abseil off a cliff edge or more terrifyingly, infinitely more terrifyingly for me as a child, go to a new school or, you know, attempt something in front of all your peers, like trying to speak in front of them or be in a play or perform. Those things for me were far more frightening. I think it makes sense to say to yourself, it would be weird not to be afraid. (laughs) That fear is something that we naturally feel around new experiences, around experiences where we can feverishly imagine the worst case scenario. But that fear is just always going to be there. You can't actually get rid of it. Or if you can, you're far more impressive than me and I would like to know how. But what you can do is you can look at it and shake hands with it. And you can say, I'm afraid. I'm not ashamed of being afraid. Fear is something that shapes every human. But I'm not going to let the fear be the thing that dictates my life. Mm. I'm going to let the thing that dictates my life be my desire and my hope and my passion and your wish to lead a life that will at the end seem to have left however tiny something good that is a stronger force than fear if you recognize that fear is just white noise in your head it's it's useful information sometimes in that we get afraid when we're say at the very edge of a ledge it's useful to know your body is telling you something. But sometimes you can say, well, I am at the end of a ledge, but I'm also very securely roped and I'm not going to fall. And therefore this fear is just an extra colour in the day, nothing more. Yeah, I think it's an, a nice way to, to use that analogy. I might try the same messaging. We, we go through exercises where we name our brain and we have conversations with our brain in my lessons but I think what you just said about shaking hands with fear is is absolutely instrumental I think that's a really great visualization as well you speak so passionately about the importance of children's literature and not just for children to read it engage with it but for many wonderful reasons why adults should also read children's stories In your recent essay, which I loved and gobbled up, why you should read children's literature even though you are so old and wise, and it was so poignant. For me, I thought the wonderful lesson from there was about the empathy and the work on learning about new perspectives. It's just so necessary, I think, in, in, in today's world. You mentioned that adults rediscover things that they didn't even know they had lost in reading children's books. I wonder if you could expand on this and how we can remind adults about gaining new perspectives so they could model that kind of learning and empathy for children. So I think one of the things that children's literature can do is it can remind you that when you were young, imagination was something which ran riot through your days and you were constantly imagining being different people and stepping into different worlds. And when we become older and busier and there are urgent compromises, which often are necessary in growing up, we can forget that imagination is not optional. We can start to think of imagination as a sort of pleasant extra available to a few people who happen to have the time for it. But imagination is 
the condition precedent, the thing you need beyond everything for change, mm. for love, for being able to imagine someone else's stance on the world. It's the thing you need most to create a different future. You have to be able to imagine it into being. You know, imagination is, you know, the, 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 the match which lights the grenade that has been created by hope. You know, you, you first will have to hope and then you have to picture it into place and then you have to work it out. Set it all in. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that, that children's books with their track, you know, the way they deal with wild possibilities, crazy nonsensicals, um, enormous emotions, huge passions. <laughs> when you read children's books, you remember what it was to believe in impossibilities, because often it is necessary to believe in impossibilities to get anything changed for the better. Mm. And, and I think children's fiction can reintroduce you to that stance that you used to have, those childhood eyes that believed that we live in a world so shot through with possibilities that it knocks you sideways. Wow. You mentioned earlier that you spend a lot longer than most of your peers in writing your books. And I, I wonder if that's going to speak to my next question. But the stories you tell are relevant. They're very relevant. They have very important themes. But it's the research that I'm more interested in. And I know, I know you probably know where I'm headed with this question. Um, I find it most notable that you allow yourself to get so immersed into your work, you make it almost visceral for your readers. You did very famously do something incredibly brave during your work on your fourth book, in which you discuss crucial environmental themes. And when I say you were brave, I mean you were so very, very, very brave. I share a clip of this, which is available on YouTube for all my listeners. You must check it out. It left my students and myself aghast every time we watched it, just looking at your willpower. Now, I'm going to leave, turn it to you and ask you if you'd be so kind to share the experience I'm referring to, and then also explain how you conjure up the courage to do such things. <laughs> so in The Explorer, there is a scene in which the four children who have crash landed in the Amazon jungle, um, they need to survive. And one of the things they do to survive is they eat a tarantula. <laughs> and I always promise the children in the books that I write that I will try to make all the details true, that the overarching story is going to be wild and profoundly uh, unlikely and imaginative. But also I want the details to be actually right, accurate. So I have always said that any of the food in my books, I will myself have eaten. So that the details I give for these uh, recipes, for instance, in the rooftop as they eat a recipe of a tomato soup up on the rooftop, and that's a real tomato soup recipe. But I didn't eat the tarantula while I was writing The Explorer because I could not bring myself to do so because we went hunting them and you rig a little stick and they come out with their front legs first and these huge pincers and it was the size of my fist and I just didn't think that I could move from stroking it to eating it. Um, but then when The Explorer came out, I was filled with a sort of fit of anxiety and we were about to republish it in paperback because it just won the Costa Children's Book Prize. And so I thought, well, this is an opportunity. I can rewrite this scene if it turns out that I got the tarantula wrong. So I found a tinned tarantula, tarantula that comes in a can, um, very ethically sourced, and ate it. Um, and um, I do believe very, very strongly in trying everything once. And 
I would say I would not try the tarantula again. <laughs> I think once was enough. It yeah. tasted like uh, burnt hair. It was not delicious. <laughs> so I think I think all you need to do is Google Catherine Mundell eating tarantula and it comes straight up. If anyone that would like to witness this, I wouldn't say rush off and buy tin tarantulas for your children, but I would really recommend uh, showing your children the video because Catherine so incredibly bravely uh, demonstrates this and I've never had a student not just be completely mesmerized by the old. <laughs> It is, it is, it is marvelous, and it's so lovely to sort of have this conversation with you. It reminds me how much I enjoy getting inside the brains of all, of, of the authors that we read. So I do feel very fortunate to have this conversation. Having said that, we are recording this interview in in such surreal times. Um, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, completely lost and confused. In fact, the UK is now in its second lockdown of the year. It's also overwhelming, and it's left many of us, children and adults utterly disheartened in many ways. And yet you very nobly put together a brilliant effort to create some solace and provide comfort to us with the compilation of short stories, poems, illustrations, and anecdotes from various authors in a masterfully created book. Donations of the sale of each book are going to NHS charities together in gratitude of the incredible efforts for all those who worked in hospitals over the quarantine period. I just think this illustrates so beautifully, no matter how helpless one might feel, that there are acts of kindness and ways to show and share appreciation. We probably need this more now than ever, where everything in the world might seem so hopeless. Having this book has been, for me anyway, a savior. Um, So first of all, I wanted to say a massive thank you to you for the energy and the gallant effort that you put into getting it out there for us. But for those of us who don't know about it and would like to get a copy of it, would you let listeners know how they can get their hands on a copy? Absolutely. So the Book of Hopes is a collection of stories and poetry and essays and pictures by 133 children's writers and illustrators. And they all, I was so honoured. I mean, I really didn't do much. I was just the one asking them to do it. They were the one who who did it. And we have such a wonderful range of writers. It's from people who were very much part of my childhood, like Michael Morpurgo and Jacqueline Wilson, and brilliant new up-and-comers like Anjali Rauf and Charlotte Jackson. And just these these fabulous voices, there are so many of them, and each piece is so short. It's only 500 words. Um, So it's like sort of stepping into someone's imagination and then stepping out again. It's Mm. it's a sort of bite of hope. And it can be bought. The hardback is available um, on all good bookshops, and uh, it's available internationally, um, although only in English. And uh, it's also, if you don't have the ability to buy a hardback, Um, it's also online not all of the pieces are there but most of them are on the National Literacy Trust website which is where it first went up during lockdown for free and if anyone wants to read it there you can um, read it online and you know read bits at bedtime read bits in the morning and it has been such a joy to be part of it to when I first started it and I was asking people to write these things and they were swamping my inbox every day there would be new ones it was like a sort of 
an army of hope. It was such a joy just to be swept away on these on yeah. these people's amazing imaginations. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful way of escaping and believing. I think it's it's lovely and it's so nice to see how people have come together for it. I, I feel kindness is so underrated as a superpower and it's probably one of the most uh, powerful ones, really, I, for a lack of a better word. I think if we can model more and more you know, acts of kindness, we're probably going to be in a much better place. In a world in which you can be anything, be kind. Yeah, yeah, awesome. it's true. It's really true. And I, I mean, I'm going to be a little bit cheeky now and ask you, because I'm sure all your lovely fans will be curious, but can we expect some more Catherine Rundell magic to bring some sparkle to us soon? Yes. So the thing that I have just, just finished, as in, you know, finished the last comma three days ago, um, is a short book. It's about 26,000 words. Uh, most of my novels are about 40, 55. So, um, so it's about half the length. And um, it's called Sky Steppers. And it's a prequel to Rooftoppers. And it's about how Matteo ended up on the rooftops and about a wild treasure hunt from rooftop to rooftop, following clues from the Art de Triomphe to the Louvre to Versailles to Notre Dame. And so it's this idea of a race against time across the rooftops. And that will be out for World Book Day on the 1st of March or thereabouts. I guess World Book Day is the 5th of March, isn't it? So around there. Oh, wow. So we've got real excitement, you know, waiting for us in, in the spring of next year. That's really exciting. Oh, how wonderful. I wonder, do you have a favourite novel? That you, or does that does an author ever have a favourite novel? Is that something you can have? Is it like talking about your children where you can't really have a favourite one? <laughs> I think the thing that people always say is that their favourite is the one they're working on right now because mm. that is the one which is not yet finished. And because it's not yet finished, there's still a potential for it to be anything and you hope it might be perfect and of course it's not going to be perfect and you know that mm -hmm. but there's still the possibility it is whereas once something is finished you can see all its faults mm -hmm. and so there is an enormous amount of pleasure in the ongoing process of keeping producing something and keeping hoping that it might be the one. But what an experience to have to write a prequel so you already know what's coming afterwards is the research and in, in the, in the writing of that as exciting or even more exciting because you know what comes afterwards. That one was a very different experience because, of course, I had to make sure that everything lined up with what we later have in yeah. Rooftoppers. Yeah. Um, but it was a real joy researching the buildings that I wanted to have at the time that it set at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. And um, just a huge pleasure to go back to those characters because I'm, I'm 33 and I was writing Rooftoppers when I was 22. So it's been a decade. And then I, I think I finished it when I was 24. It took me a long time. Um, but so it's been a long, long time since I last revisited those rooftops and it was a real delight. Uh, what a marvel. You speak um, about writing and finishing your novel at such a young age. I wonder if that would be a good place to start asking you if as a female writer, you faced any real barriers to becoming accomplished or do you find any gender differences for people in your industry? I think the gender differences are not the main barrier. I think once you have children, of course, suddenly there is a huge difficulty in finding time, but that I don't have children, that has not been my experience. I think the with children's fiction currently, the main barrier to access is race. And in that instance, um, I am in the immensely privileged group and children's fiction has a real race problem. Um, and of course, an inherited racism problem. And what we're trying to do as a whole group 
um, is try to make space and to herald these new voices because by trying to discover voices from different cultures with new jokes and new possibilities, people who have new takes on the world, who have seen different things and understand things just a little differently, it makes the world so much huger if we are able to bring those voices to the fore rather than the ones that we have been hearing for so long. The stats on the lack of different minorities and different cultures being represented in, in books is absolutely shocking. So, yeah, well done for raising awareness in that and, and reminding us of the importance of having lots of different voices in, in, in our writing. I think that's really important. And do you have any advice for a young girl who dreams of being an author? Would you have any tips or anything you'd like to say to young children? So I would say um, one thing is girl specific and one thing is everyone specific. Um, when you are a young woman at school, there is often a energy that suggests that you should pretend not to be good at the things you're good at and it can be embarrassing to be good at something and often we are taught as young women to um, hide your excellence behind uh, self-deprecation but the self-deprecation becomes so huge that sometimes it obliterates in your own heart the the, the real excellences that you all will have. So I don't mean that you have to sort of barge into every room you go and lean against the doorway and say, you know, well, I'm actually very good at geography. I don't, I don't mean that. But I do mean that there will always be someone who goes into an exam and says, oh God, I did absolutely terribly. I'm sure I'm awful. And often they did quite well. Um, I was that girl. Don't be that girl. That girl is annoying, but that girl is also at risk of starting to believe the thing she's telling herself, which is that she's no good. So if you're good at something, admit it. If you're good at something, say you're good at it. And if your friends are good at something, tell them that they're good at it. And you guys, any younger girls listening, can be part of the generation that doesn't do what we all did, which is silence ourselves around young men because we didn't want to be clever among them and pretend to be smaller than you are because you are brilliant and infinite and there is nothing better than letting the world see it. So I would say that applied to girls. Um, of course, there are many boys like that, but in the schools, I've now been going to schools for more than a decade, and I tend to see it skew more towards uh, young women. And then the other thing is this. Um, if you want to be a writer, the best thing you can do is write every day. But obviously, that's enormously hard to do. Um, so try keeping a diary. But I've never been able to keep a diary in my life. But instead of keeping a proper diary, just write one sentence in a book every day and you're not allowed to write more than one sentence and it has to be the most interesting thing that day the saddest thing or the funniest thing the thing that struck you something you saw in the street something you read something you heard an anecdote someone told you a fact you learned and then at the end of the year you have 365 interesting sentences and never throw those books away because those books will be so valuable and I wish that I actually did this I do it about half the time but I love looking back over those most interesting sentences Oh, wow. That's such a great tip because I, like you, have never been successful at writing diaries, but possibly a sentence a day is something we can all manage. I think that's quite... Exactly. Uh, we can all bring it down, bring the, the, the level down. Yeah. I mean, are you incredibly disciplined when you do write? Do you sit at your desk or do you sit somewhere? Do you find a spell? Like, what, talk us through your 
what rituals you must go through in order to get a good solid piece of writing done in a day? So I think you do as a writer have to be disciplined in that nobody is going to be disciplined for you because nobody can see if you're doing your work because it's months before you have to hand it in. So I could technically do nothing for two months and no one would know, except they would when I had no book. Um, And so I try to give myself an amount of writing to do a day. Um, And it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be perfect. I just try to say, I know that I want this scene to be put on paper. And once I've written it, I can rewrite it. So I often tell myself, there is no, it is better to have bad writing than no writing, because you can always turn bad writing into good writing, but no writing just remains no writing. So I try to force myself to do around a thousand words a day. And if it's going badly, usually that's okay. And I sit and I do it and it takes about half a day and then I'll try and edit the other half. Uh, but if that's going very badly, then I have a brilliant friend. Uh, we did our PhDs together, our doctoral theses, and um, we have this uh, trick whereby if you don't write whatever your target is that day, whether it's a thousand words or three hours at your computer or whatever it is, you have to give a hundred pounds to a donkey sanctuary. And this donkey sanctuary is the richest donkey sanctuary in England. The, the donkeys are so well off. They are, you know, much better address than I am. And so you can't kid yourself that it's good that you're giving it to charity because it's a charity, but it's not, they don't need our money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have this sort of uh, impetus to force you to do your work. And that has been really, really helping. So we call it putting the donkeys on. And so, you know, sometimes you just text your friend and say, okay, I need donkeys today. 2000 words. If I haven't done it, I'll send hundred pounds. Amazing. And that, that's a great way of being held accountable for something. I think that's really wise. It can probably be applied to all sorts of different aspects of our lives. So many things. <laughs> to get to. That's really another fabulous Catherine Mandel tip. I will keep that one in mind. Oh, wow, 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 Catherine. I can't believe how quickly the time has gone. Your ability to capture a feeling and describe it to your audience is definitely a gift of pure genius and joy a gift I truly hope you'll continue enlightening and sharing with all of us for many, many, many years to come. I could speak to you literally till the cows come home. You've just been an absolute delight in having this conversation. And I can't thank you enough, honestly, for your time, for your energy. And if you haven't done so already, listeners, what are you waiting for? Do go out and order yourselves copies of the most extraordinary, wildly imaginative books you'll ever find, full of adventure and fun written so beautifully by our tremendous guest today, Catherine Mandel. You just won't regret it. I promise. Thank you so much. Ah, Thank you all for joining us for this conversation with Catherine Mandel. I'm sure you'll agree she was an absolute breath of fresh air and so needed for all of us, I think, at this time. Please do rate, review and subscribe the podcast. And I look forward to having you join us again. Bye.